Thanks to Hussey for reading uh, God's Word to us, and uh, good morning everyone once again. It's great to be with you this morning, and thanks to Dave for inviting me uh, here, and it's a great privilege to be able to, uh, to be here and to be with you and to worship God together, to see what God's doing here at Tremoyne <clears throat> Presbyterian, and of course, uh, it's a great privilege to be able to look at God's Word together as well this morning. So before we do that, let's pause and ask for God's help as we look at this chapter together. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have of knowing you. Thank you for your kindness and grace and bringing us into your family. Thank you for the security of the promises we have in the Lord Jesus, that we are yours, that you keep us, you sustain us, and you provide for us. And we pray this morning as we look at this chapter that you would uh, continue to strengthen our understanding of who you are and strengthen our trust in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all come from a, a range of different backgrounds, don't we? We're all in a, a range of different circumstances and settings. And as those who know and love the Lord Jesus, we're all keen to serve God in whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance that we are in. Maybe uh, a new mum and, uh, and setting out and, and thinking through how we might serve God and raising children and being, uh, having a new family and, uh, and working out what it might look like to serve God in this setting, or perhaps starting school, or perhaps having just finished school, or uh, perhaps uh, entering into a new job, or uh, just entering into retirement perhaps, or kids leaving home, all different phases and stages of life in which we would seek to serve God. Regardless of what the setting is or what the circumstances are, I wonder this morning, what are your expectations for what it might look like to serve God in that setting? What are your expectations for uh, how God is going to use you in this stage or in this circumstance or in this setting? Uh, It's hard to imagine, isn't it? As you look ahead, I guess, as you look to the weeks and the years to come, what it might look like, or what the family dynamics will be, or what the working situation uh, might turn out to be like. Some of us are a little bit more optimistic, and, and we look ahead and we can see great opportunities for making a difference in people's lives, or uh, praying and expecting there to be conversations where we might be able to talk about Jesus or encourage others in their walk with him. Uh, some of us might be a little bit more pessimistic and uh, can look ahead and just see only potential difficulties and challenges that are going to come our way. Regardless of what the setting is, where we might be serving God, uh, this passage, I think, will help us this morning. This account and this chapter will help us to think about what it's like to serve God. If we take a step back, first of all, and just ask ourselves, what is this chapter about? I don't know if you were thinking that (laughs) uh, as uh, Darcy was reading it. You think, what? what is God giving us this chapter for? What's going on in this chapter? Probably you might be able to answer that very straightforwardly, that basically this chapter is about Paul getting to Rome. That's okay, isn't it? That's fairly straightforward. This chapter is about Paul getting to Rome. If we were to get a little bit more specific and dig in a little bit deeper, uh, we might say that this chapter is about God getting Paul to Rome. Uh, 
before we go any further, just notice that right at the very heart of this chapter are the verses in verses 22, 23, and 24, where we read Paul saying that God has promised to get him to be able to stand trial before Caesar, and he's promised to get him there along with everybody else in the boat. And, uh, and this, of course, is reiterating a promise that the Lord Jesus said back in chapter 23, verse 11, where the Lord Jesus said, Take courage, Paul, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So at one level, this is a chapter about God keeping his promise to get Paul to Rome. And as Paul explains that promise in this chapter, you'll notice that he describes himself as someone who belongs to God and who seeks to serve God. So this is about God keeping the promise of someone who belongs to him so that he would be able to serve him and get to Rome. But here's our question that I want us to think about this morning. Why didn't Luke just begin, as he does in chapter 27, verse 1, by saying it was decided that we would sail for Italy and then say, as he says in chapter 28, at the end of verse 14, and so we came to Rome. Why doesn't he just say, we set sail for Italy, and like he does elsewhere in the book of Acts, and after many days we made it to Rome? Or we might even say, you know, having just read the chapter, we might say, why didn't uh, Luke say, we set sail for Italy, and after many difficulties uh, we made it to Rome? Why doesn't he just do that? One of the Uh, reasons is because this account is not just telling us that Paul's going to Rome. It's not just even telling us that God is the one who's getting Paul to Rome. This account is showing us how it is God keeps his promise to get Paul to Rome. This account is showing us what it looks like for God to keep his promise to get Paul to Rome. And so, because all of us too here this morning, if we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, because all of us too can say, like Paul does here in verse 23, that we belong to God and we seek to serve him, I think we can say that by extension, this passage is helping us to see how God accomplishes his promises in the lives of those who belong to him. What it looks like for God to keep his promises in our lives as well. So this morning, I'm just going to uh, uh, hope to help us to see just two observations this morning, just two very simple observations about what this chapter is telling us about how God keeps his promises in our lives, in the lives of those who belong to God and seek to serve him. Okay, so the first one we're going to notice here this morning, uh, the first observation is that God accomplishes his promises in our lives, in the lives of those uh, who seek to serve him in the midst of unplanned changes. Okay, God keeps his promises in our lives as we seek to serve him in the midst of unplanned 
changes. Did you notice, as we heard the Bible read earlier, did you notice all of the details in this chapter? So many details. Uh, Details of names of people, all the different names of the people that accompanied Paul or the people that Paul met along the way, the details of various places and towns and cities that uh, as he sort of made his way across the Mediterranean, all these specific names of people and places, even the names of a wind we're given here, the wind that was called a northeaster, or the name of specific islands, some of them so small you can barely find them on a map. All these details, and even the name of a sandbar is given in this account as well. So names of people, names of places, names of winds and islands and sandbars. And then we're given all these other details as well. The sailing and weather conditions are recounted for us. Even specific time notes after this day and then the next day and then 14 days. And all these details about days and descriptions of harbours. I don't know if you noticed the description of one harbour and which direction it faced and how it faced this way and this way. All these details, uh, descriptions of depth measurements. Depending on your version, it was given in either feet or metres, but specific details here, either 30 metres or 40 metres, even the number of anchors we were told about, four anchors, even the origin of one of the boats where it came from originally. Not even really a detail that really mattered. (laughs) This boat originally came from Alexandria. Amazing, isn't it? Why so many details of all these names of people and places and islands and winds and harbors and sandbars and anchors and measurements, all these details? One reason is because of the very first verse. Notice, notice the way this chapter begins. Chapter 27, verse 1. It was decided that we would sail for Italy. So this is indicating for us here that the author, Luke, the writer of this account, he's included here. When he says we would sail for Italy, he's obviously a part of this journey. So one of the reasons why we have so many details here is because Luke saw the waves and he felt the winds and he was the one who was also a part of them holding onto the, the wood of the boat to make it onto the sand, uh, onto the shore as well. He was there, so he experienced all of these things. So he's providing us with all of these details. But also, Luke here is describing the real world of the people and the events and the circumstances in which God is carrying out his promise and his purposes. This is the real world in which Paul seeks to serve God as he encounters centurions and people on a boat and sailors and, and, and all kinds of things. This is the real world in which God is keeping his promise to get Paul to Rome. So what's this world like then? What kind of world is this in which God is accomplishing his promise in Paul's life? Well, it's a world in which, not always, but it's a world in which there are storms, untamable weather, unplanned changes and stopovers, redirections from original plans, 
desperate measures to reach safety. This is a world in which sometimes there is occasional despair. Did you notice that? Look at verse 20 of chapter 27 here. In verse 20, the author says, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Again, we, this is including the author. Things looked so bad that they gave up. This was despair as being expressed here. But it's a world in which there's unexpected kindnesses from ordinary people along the way. The centurion we read in verse 3 allowed Paul to to, uh, meet his friends in Sidon and to be encouraged and strengthened and supported by his friends. And uh, in chapter 28, we find that the people of Malta, like the centurion, not believers in Jesus, but helping Paul and and providing for him and uh, helping him to keep warm and dry. So it's the world of unexpected kindnesses from ordinary people along the way. And then there's also welcome encouragement from fellow believers, the friends that we mentioned in verse 3 that Paul is allowed to see and, and to meet him and to strengthen him and help him. At the end of the account in chapter 28, when Paul is on his way to Rome, there is believers who meet him on the way, and we read that Paul was encouraged when he sees them. So this is the world of untamable weather, storms, unexpected changes in direction, occasional despair, unexpected kindness from ordinary people, welcome encouragement from fellow Christians, and it's in the midst of all of these things that God is keeping his promise. The promise that was stated in chapter 23 that Paul would get to Rome and the promise that is repeated here in this chapter that he's going to be kept safe, he and everyone in the boat. This is the kind of world in which God is keeping his promise for Paul. God's promise to Paul here was not the absence of these things, but his promise was being worked out through these things. I want to tell you about three people uh, that we got to know when we were in Chicago. Three of them happened to be all uh, lecturers at the place where I was studying, and uh, they all had very similar circumstances, but it all worked out in in three very different ways for the three of them. Uh, One man by the name of John Feinberg was a famous theologian, had done his PhD on the problem of evil at the University of Chicago and had that published as a book called The Many Faces of Evil. Someone who thought that he would be well prepared for facing suffering if it was to come into his life. And uh, after he'd been married for a number of years and they had children, uh, they found that his wife Patricia had Huntington's disease. You know, I'm not a medical expert, but I I understand that Huntington's disease is a hereditary disease, uh, and it's a degenerative disease. And so at that point, they realized that they were going to face the rest of their years as a married couple in which uh, John Feinberg would watch his wife gradually, year after year after year, deteriorate, both in mind and body. And also then, knowing that it was a hereditary disease, wondering year after year if this was going to show up in their children as well. And so it was a a massive uh, shock to all of them, and they uh, managed to find uh, help and care for Patricia, and and John Feinberg was able to continue teaching 
at Trinity and, uh, and uh, with the support of others and, and uh, enabling to, to continue to care for his wife. This was nearly 25 or 30 years ago that he found out. He's only just recently retired and is still caring for his wife. Wayne Grudem was another uh, person who taught there, a well-known theologian, written books on theology that people would buy. And uh, his wife, Margaret, uh, they found was getting increasingly uh, feeling, uh, uh, her body was increasingly feeling pain, uh, both when it was very hot and when it was extremely cold. And unfortunately in Chicago, they're basically the two weather conditions uh, that's there. It's either very cold in winter or it's very hot and humid. So it ended up that she was in pain for most of the year round. Uh, one time they, just, they were able to go for a holiday to Arizona and she felt much better. The pain was no longer there. And it seems as though this change in, in weather condition, uh, she said she'd never felt better. And so uh, Wayne Grudem said it, he felt convicted by the verse in Ephesians 5, verse 28, that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And so he thought, well, if this was my body, I think I would rather live in Arizona. And so uh, back then there was uh, phone books, and so he looked up in a phone book where there might be another seminary, if there was another one down there that he might be able to go and teach at. He was not qualified or able to do anything else, so he uh, was looking for a place to teach, and they found this little place no one had ever heard of before. He phoned them up and said, do you think there'd be a chance of uh, offering me a position? And apparently they, they uh, like, you know, sort of fell off their chair when they realized who it was on the other end of the phone, and yes, you know, they found a place for him. And, uh, and so they moved to Arizona, and he started teaching at this small uh, school, from moving from the sort of prestigious position where he was to an unknown place in Phoenix, Arizona. The third person I want to tell you about is a guy by the name of Murray Harris. He was a New Zealander, and so, of course, he was a, a hero of ours. And, uh, and Murray Harris actually left Trinity just before we got there, but we got to know him in sub- subsequent years. His wife, Jennifer, they found had multiple sclerosis. And so he was leaving, they were leaving Trinity to go back to New Zealand, and he then was going to become her full-time carer. Apparently she said to him, out of frustration one day, I just wish you could get on with your own work, she said to him. And his reply was, Jennifer, caring for you is my work. Caring for you is my work. So these three very different situations, John Palmer was able to continue teaching, Uh, Wayne Grudem moved to another obscure place in order to care for his wife, and Murray Harris became a full-time carer for his wife. She's just recently passed away, so he's spent the last 30 years caring uh, for his wife as well, as she deteriorated in mind and body. You see, we're nowhere promised, are we? that no missionary will ever be drowned at sea. We're nowhere promised in the Bible, we have no guarantee that no evangelists will ever be lost in a plane crash. Not even the Apostle Paul had such assurances at other times that he wouldn't die before completing some specific task. We're not told, are we, that God's love will save us from ever experiencing trouble or anguish or famine 
or bad weather or death. But we are promised that nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. And so this morning, whatever it is that seems to have blown you off course, so to speak, whatever it seems to have come in unplanned and unexpected, whether it be family health or a bankrupt business or a house with termites, all kinds of unexpected and unplanned changes, the encouragement of this chapter is that God is accomplishing his promise in our lives as we serve him in the real world of these unexpected and unplanned changes. And it's still true for all of us, as it was true for Paul, that those who know the Lord Jesus belong to God and are secure in him and continue to serve him as he works out his promises and his good and loving purposes in our lives. So the first observation I'm wanting us to notice here is just that, that God is accomplishing his promise in Paul's life and in the lives of those who serve him in the midst of unplanned changes, in the real world of unexpected events. But I want us to notice, secondly, that Paul doesn't just sit back and just wait for God to keep his promise to get him to Rome. Uh, We're going to see, secondly, then, that God accomplishes his promises through meaningful choices, through our ordinary actions in our lives. We're going to look now at three or four times that Paul speaks in this passage. There's four, but there's sort of a couple of them are joined together. So we're going to zero in on three or four times where Paul speaks up and just notice what he says and how he, how he expresses um, what they should be doing. So the first one is in verses 9 to 11. Here's where Paul speaks here. That in verse 9, we're told there uh, had been uh, time lost, and so they had entered into the dangerous season for sailing, and the, the weather was terrible, and because it was after this particular time in the year, they shouldn't continue. It was really bad time. Nobody else is sailing at this particular time of year. And so Paul warns them at the end of verse 9, And verse 10, uh, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo into our own lives also. You see what Paul is doing here? He's not saying, it's okay, guys, this is horrendous weather, but it's all right. God's promised to get me to Rome. So even though nobody else sails at this time, doesn't matter. Let's just press on and sail anyway. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, no, this is a bad time of year. This is terrible weather. We shouldn't set out in this weather. Paul is thinking here that to risk shipwreck in the lives of the 276 people on the boat just to get to a better harbor was foolish. And so although God had promised to get Paul to Rome, Paul knew the difference between faith and foolish presumption. He knew the difference between faith and foolish presumption. And so that's the first time Paul speaks on this journey. The second time he speaks is in verses 22 and 23, which we've mentioned already, where he reiterates this promise that God is going to keep them safe and bring them through to the 
to, to land. So in verse 22, there he says, not one of you will be lost. So he reiterates this to them. Now keep that in mind as we read the following statements. Look at uh, the third time that Paul speaks in verse 31. This time, in the preceding verse, the sailors were all secretly trying to abandon ship. So they were sort of trying to lower the boats and take off and leave them. And so Paul says in verse 31 to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. That's remarkable, isn't it? He's been given the promise that none of them is going to be lost, that they're all going to make it safe. And yet here he says, unless these sailors stay in the boat, we cannot be saved. What's What's he noticing here? He's noticing... If we're going to make it, we need to have people on the boat who know how to work the boat. (laughs) We need sailors on this boat. I don't know what to do with these tackles and ropes and sails and things. We need people who know how to operate these things. And so he says, the sailors, they, they need to stay. He's not saying here that it doesn't matter, we're going to make it anyway. He's saying we need the experts. We need the navigational skills and experience of these sailors. This promise is going to be fulfilled through the human effort and skill of these sailors. Now, one last time Paul speaks on this journey, and that's in the following verses, in verse 33. Just before dawn, we read, Paul urges them to eat. He says, look, for the last two weeks, you've been battling this storm, and you haven't had anything to eat yet. So, verse 34, I urge you to take some food. And look at what he says, you need it to survive. And then he reiterates the promise in a sort of a proverb, not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Notice what Paul is saying here. He's not saying, it's okay, God is going to provide us with an angelic chairlift and we're going to waft over the waves and land safely at the shore. He's not saying that, is he? He's not saying, it's okay, God's going to provide a miracle and the, and the water is going to be calm and we're just going to smoothly sail into shore. No, he's saying, you guys, we're going to have a great battle with storms and waves and you know what? You need to eat some food. You need every calorie of energy for the battle of waves that is about to come. And then, of course, as you remember, the following verses, the last verses of the chapter then recount in great detail with the big drama of, you know, crashing waves and holding on to the wood in order to to make it safely to the shore. So, though the four times that Paul speaks in this in this chapter. Now, just if we just have a look back at those things that Paul said, what is it that strikes you about them? He said, okay, this is bad weather. We shouldn't head out. He says, okay, we need these sailors to stay in the boat or we're not going to make it. He says, we need to eat food or we're not going to have enough energy to be able to make it. What would you call those observations? We might, we might say they're, they're not very profound, are they? They're, they're fairly obvious, aren't they? They're fairly mundane. This is bad weather, we shouldn't sail. We need sailors to know how to work the boat. We need food in order to face the the waves that are, that's about to come. They're ordinary, aren't they? Very mundane observations. Before we were about to come to, um, to SNBC to teach uh, um, here in Sydney, we were living in Chicago, and back in those days, 
um, sermons were recorded on cassette tapes. <laughs> and, uh, and so in Chicago, we would listen to some cassette tapes of chapels and, and speakers of SNBC to get a bit of a feel for uh, what we might be coming to. And I remember hearing a sermon by one of the lecturers, Kirk Patston. He's an Old Testament lecturer. He says things in a, in a much more poetic way um, than I do. And there was a statement that he said, I actually don't remember what the rest of the sermon was about, but there was one statement in there that I remember where he said, uh, sometimes the truest thing to say is two true things. Sometimes the truest thing to say is two true things. What are the two true things, we might say, is coming through in Paul's statements that we've just read? Two true things. On the one hand, it's true that God is sovereign. God's the one who's going to keep them. He's promised, and he will bring them through, and he will accomplish his will. God is sovereign. On the other hand, it's also true that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. God is sovereign, and yet also he uses our meaningful choices, our ordinary actions to accomplish his purposes. It's a very simple, in some ways, but often forgotten truth that God's promises are accomplished through the ordinary, everyday actions, and choices in our lives. Just Let me illustrate with just a couple of uh, passages from uh, outside of the book of Acts, uh, well-known passages. Romans 8, uh, 39 describes the, uh, Romans 8 verse 30 rather, describes the, the Christian as someone who is predestined, called, justified, glorified. How are we saved? It's by God's grace. We're like the people who are rowing away in our boat, away from God and rebellion from him. And yet in his kindness, he rescues us. He opens our eyes in order to see our need for Jesus and brings us into his family out of his kindness. All of God, God's grace. And yet if you turn the page in Romans, you go to Romans chapter 10, and you find that people need to believe in order to be saved. And in order to believe, they need to hear a message. They need to hear the gospel message. And for someone to speak and and tell the the gospel message, they need to be sent. And so Romans 8 verse 30 says, it's all God. He predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. Romans 10, we need to hear, we need to believe, and someone needs to speak and say the gospel to us in order for us to respond to the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, another famous verse, says that he who began a good work in us will carry it through to completion. Again, God's the one who's working in our lives. He's going to keep us safe and secure. He's the one who began the work, and he's the one who's going to bring us through to see him. And yet, if you turn the page in Philippians, you go over to chapter 2, and Paul says we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So what does this say to us this morning, these two true things here? As we've looked back over this passage, we've seen that on the one hand, as we seek to serve God in all the various contexts and settings in which we are in, whether it be raising a family or into a new workplace or, or, or entering into retirement or kids moving out of home, 
we can uh, serve God knowing that he accomplishes his promise in our lives, even in the midst of unplanned, unexpected changes. But the second observation that we've been noticing here is that God accomplishes his purposes in our lives through our ordinary, seemingly mundane, unsurprising, ordinary actions. And so it's the ordinary conversation with the kids in the back of the car on our way to school. It's the regular turning up and, uh, and seeking to be faithful and reliable in the place that God has set us as a context in which he will accomplish his purposes. God is sovereign, and yet he accomplishes his promises through us, through their ordinary, seemingly mundane actions and meaningful choices. And all of these things, this chapter reminds us that we are secure because of the Lord Jesus, we can say with Paul that we belong to God. And so we seek to serve him as those who belong to God and are safe and secure in Christ. And it's in Christ that we can know that he will accomplish his promises in our lives.